Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Step outside and hit the road. Gotta leave or you'll explode. Find yourself a new abode where you can be alone and live life on your own. Step outside. Step outside. Aaron Gandy spent nine years as an assistant music director for The Lion King on Broadway. He's also worked on You're in Town. He music directed Busker Alley starring Glenn Close, and he wrote a show just for Jim Dale. Yes, Harry Potter fans, that Jim Dale, the narrator of the American audiobook series. Oh, and he's a Tony Award winner for his portrayal of Barnum. Before all of that, Aaron wrote this music, which did not get a full production, but he's very proud of it, and he'll tell you about it in just a moment. Is in between, fresh and clean, with no routine to show. So step outside that atmosphere. Hello, I'm David Lane. This is Life in the Pit. It's episode 24. And uh, this is being released on Halloween weekend, so please have a safe time if you're going out trick-or-treating. And this is also the weekend before Election Day, and I just want to encourage all of you, if you have not already done so, please take this time to vote. All right, this is a long interview, and and, and I'm not going to apologize for it because I cut probably 15 or 20 minutes from it. So I've mentioned a few things about Aaron Gandy already. One thing I did not mention is that we went to the same high school, not quite at the same time. I'm a few years younger than he is, but uh, because of the nature of marching band at that time, middle schoolers were allowed to march with the high schoolers. And I was in eighth grade when he was in 12th grade. And the first several minutes of this interview was just me recording from the very beginning, uh, just having a time catching up. We had not spoken in over 30 years, and uh, I kept some of that in because it's just so fun. Um, So you guys will have to bear with me. We'll get to the meat of the interview, but it's quite a meaty interview. Aaron has had a fun uh, career, and we're going to talk about that from the very small town that we both went to school and where he went from there and how he met people like Glenn Close and Jim Dale, and uh, how what it was like working on The Lion King for nine years. So I'm very excited to now present my conversation with my former high school classmate, Aaron Gandy. Well, how have you been? It's like, I was just thinking, I said 30. Seriously, 30 years? I think it's been 31. Didn't you graduate 31 years ago? Uh... I graduated 89, yeah. so yeah. So I was in eighth grade when you graduated, and we never actually went to high school together, but because of the marching band system, seventh and eighth graders were able to march. You were the reason I remember that we had a uh, younger than ninth grade in the band. Oh, yeah. Were there others, or were you it? Oh, no, no. There were seventh and eighth graders uh, pretty regularly. And I, I don't, don't think remember we, too many of them. No, and we didn't really talk much. I mean, we didn't really, I don't remember talking at all until we both shared a room uh, when we went to Allstate, which was your senior year, my eighth grade, my eighth grade year. Wow. What a kick being able to go on like a big high school trip when you were uh, still in eighth grade. Oh, yeah. That was, that must have been like amazingly awesome. Well, I think the the amazing part is it was just a few of us, you know, it's like I never really got into the whole big everybody go on the same trip is like it was kind of fun to get away from everybody <laughs> just about yeah all. totally totally oh, yeah i mean last i knew this, this is so funny because i need a, a quick education last i knew of you you were a french horn player yeah uh, i mean well, now i've always and i, I know you play so many other things right. now <laughs> right uh so i played i played piano since i was five and i picked up french horn in seventh grade right like literally months before i moved to defuniac and um 
And Mike Farr was so desperate for French horn players. Oh yeah. Oh, he was really. He happy was like, when I "You moved. come with me." <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, I kept I, up French horn until about three or four years ago, and I, I sold it off. But it's just I had too many hats. Got to get rid of some hats, you know. Totally. <laughs> and um, you know, Fr- French horn was it. It got me to college. It helped with a scholarship. Yeah. Um. You know, because. I played for wind ensemble, I played for orchestra, but uh, it, it wasn't something that I practiced to the level where I was going to get hired by orchestras or it just wasn't where, I'm, you know, plus the fact that I had some deficiencies. Like I, I still never could double tongue, triple tongue or flutter tongue, you know, it's like, and I had no low range, you know, I could play, I was an ideal third horn player if, if the parts <laughs> weren't too difficult, you know, but uh, it was a lot of fun. It's so funny that you say that because I felt the same way about trumpet. I was, um, I went to Florida State as a music ed major with principal trumpet for a year, and then I switched over to the music theater program. Right. And um, and I never felt like I was good enough on the trumpet. Mm-hmm. Like I was good enough to like do what I needed to do in high school. As right. soon as I got to a bigger fishbowl, right, it was right. so clear to me that there were guys who could play circles around me and <laughs> and loved the repertoire, which. I didn't at all. Right. I hated practicing the trumpet. And so I, uh, I quickly was like, Oh, this isn't for me. <laughs> right. And I left it. And I never had the, I never had the upper note high extension that so many other trumpet players at first trumpet players had. I played first in college. Right. But I was, that was, even, that made it even worse because I was sitting next to guys who could play a fourth higher than I could on my best day. Oh Yeah. I mean, they could squeak out F's and G's. Right. Uh, and I could, I, on a good day, I could sustain a C on a good day. Wow. And I was just like, this is just not, I, I, I'm i in the wrong place. So I bailed on that. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to start here uh, with just kind of our official conversation because, uh, so we have a shared experience and I'm, I'm, I'm going inter- to interview a lot of people for this podcast, but you're probably not only the only person that I will interview that's lived in Defuniac Springs, Florida, but but actually grew up there <laughs> a portion, at least a portion. Um, that's a disadvantage for people in music. Yeah. Man. And so, you know, I, I know my own stories of, uh, you know, where I got to, but what is that like? You're, I mean, had you always lived in Defuniac or did you move there from somewhere else? My, I'd always had family roots in Defuniac. I lived in other places across North Florida uh, when my parents were were young in um, Pensacola, basically all across I-10, Pensacola, Tallahassee, and Jacksonville. Um, right. And uh, finally moved back to Defuniac for my last three years of high school, not even my freshman year. I did freshman year over in Orange Park, Florida, just south of Jacksonville. Okay. And um, and so I, I got a middle school start with music in bigger cities, which right. I think was a lifesaver for me because it gave me some perspective on what a, 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 a really muscular school music program might actually look like. Um, and, and I, boy, did I notice the deficiencies right in that department once I got to Defuniac Springs. Um, but because I'd seen other bigger departments in other middle schools and other high schools, uh, that at least gave me a sense of what was possible and what could be and what I might should be doing in it. Right. Um, uh, so that was, I was on trumpet since sixth grade and I was told I had to play trumpet because my dad owned a trumpet. He played trumpet in high school and it's been sitting in the closet ever since. And by God, you're going to play the trumpet kid because mm-hmm. I'm not going to buy another instrument. That's literally right. how I ended up on trumpet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then my grandmother bought a piano at some point, no one in the family played absolutely no one. And, um, she bought me sheet music magazine mm. If you remember from I remember the nineteen seventies and the eighties, and bought me some uh, rudimentary finger exercise books, and I taught myself. And um, from that point on, I kind of came at music from an instrumental background as a wind player, but also as a ten-fingered quasi-pianist. Uh, talk about complaints about small towns. I remember in high school being very upset that the only opportunity I had for piano lessons was a woman, rumor had it, that taught piano lessons in Bonifay, mm-hmm. which was 45 minutes away, listeners, right. um, toward the east of Defuniac. And my dad said, are you crazy? I'm not yeah. driving you to Bonifay once a week right. just for music lessons. 
Right. Forget it. So uh, that went, you know, way to, and I've regretted that ever since. I wish I'd been able to start my actual formal keyboard training back then when I first expressed a desire to, but that waited until college. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could I mean, have uh, driven the same distance and going to Fort Walton Beach and had a lot better crop of teachers. <laughs> I probably could have. Yeah. I moved from Fort Walton Beach. Uh, and by the way, just, uh, just again, for the listeners, you hear us talking about Florida. And if you're not from Florida, you might be thinking, oh, Orlando, Tampa, Miami, uh, Jacksonville, maybe. Uh, no, we're, we're talking 300 miles from any of those. <laughs> you're 600 miles from Miami. Uh, we're, this is the panhandle. This is um, uh, my, my dad played in a bluegrass band called the L.A. Grass. L.A. stood for Lower Alabama. Basically. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. Think and, of Alabama and just keep going down. And and if you're on that part of Florida and you're wondering <laughs> what's what's there to do in that part of Florida, well, if you go to the coast, you'll see the most beautiful beaches in America. And and I, I would stand by that. If you get further than two miles inland, <laughs> everything kind of <laughs> changes uh, culturally and, you know, for certain, certain workers, it's a great place. It, I think it's come, I won't say a long way. I think it's progressed in terms of the arts. I think you've had a few influential people there, uh, with some money that have kind of helped that on. Um, like, like I, I tuned into what the band was doing not too long ago and they were getting superiors at concert, which was different, you know, like we would only get superiors in marching, <laughs> Wow. And um, so, you know, I think you've, you've, it's come a little ways at least, but yeah. Uh, but this is a, this town, I haven't checked the latest census, but I don't think the population's significantly changed since we were there when it was 5,000 people. <laughs> and um, that's, uh, so that's kind of what we're, we're talking about <laughs> here. But yeah, I moved there from Fort Walton Beach, which had 20,000 people, but you also had the surrounding Eglin Air Force Base and so forth. And I was fortunate enough to study with Helen Dingus, who, in retrospect, I don't think she was a great technical teacher. It's like so many of the things that I've learned that I've passed on to my students, m much of it I've, I have, I learned in college, you know, I learned beyond and from other teachers. But the one thing she was really good at is uh, she was one of the first people to have, like, computer technology. I was playing on her, like, Apple One computer learning theory, and those theory games were great. But she also – she was president of, like, every state organization, and I got six to nine performances a year, uh, like, wow. from the age of six onward. And, you know, so that – and I was super shy, so that really helped me – at least be able to overcome that to perform in front of other people. I'll and, uh, and actually, um, yeah, I, I, I converted one of the trumpet players. He would have been a freshman when you were a senior, Ashley hood. Does that ring a bell? I remember Ashley. Sure. Yeah. Ash so Ashley started when he was in 10th grade, he started coming to lessons and, uh, he would, we actually carpooled, we shared an hour, it's like the, the system was like an, a half hour on the computer, half hour at the piano. So we shared an hour slot and right. and flipped, you know, the roles and all that. So, um, yeah, you, you know, you we talk about that. You had a pretty good trumpet section. Like in terms of what I would say very smart people, you were first chair, second chair, I believe was Reed Harrison. And... Reed, uh, you know, he's not on social media anymore, but last time I checked in, he was having great success out in, uh, in LA and, uh, you know, he's got a doctorate and he's, you know, doing quite a bit of things. Uh, yeah. I know Ashley was very bright and, uh, and I know over in the tuba you have, uh, he, he died at a tragically young age, Matt Hagen. I remember Matt very well. Yeah. Yeah. But he was, yeah. he was one of like, he and Reed were two of like four valedictorians like a four-way tie for the class of 1990 yeah and then you had uh you know also very bright done really well uh lawrence leclerc trombones and then of course his brother louis he went to jacksonville same time i did uh, i i went to jacksonville university he went to north florida uh for oh. the jazz program there and uh he's he's a professional musician too so i didn't a, know that that's cool yeah and of course, you know, my class produced one of the 
current U.S. senators, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. You might know her what? brother, Dan Cinema. <laughs> no way. Yeah. So it's like, I did not know that. Just kind of a small world stuff here. So, but uh, you know, kind of back to the point, you you kind of had to make your own way, and we haven't even talked about theater yet. Um, I never gave theater a thought until, I mean, I, I never really thought about it at all until I got to college, where I finally was around theater people, but I never yeah. got into it until my thirties. You know, so it was very late for me. But uh, I, I had a pretty good friend in my class. He, you wouldn't know him. He, he moved after you, long after you graduated. He, was, he moved here maybe 92, 91, or I say here, moved to Defuniac. Uh, but he was in the Chautauqua uh, theater program. It was like right on Baldwin Avenue, there was a theater. And apparently it was like a community theater. And I never saw a show. I never knew anything about it. But that's the only thing I know of. I don't, there wasn't a, there was no drama program at high school, was there? No, there was a choral program, and that was it. Right. However, I, I can fill you in on some info on the Chautauqua Little okay. Theater. Uh, that's how I started in theater. Okay. In um, There was a woman whose name was Elizabeth Neal. She was a graduate of Florida State back before it went co-ed, mm -hmm. back when it was the Women's College of Florida, and she was an English and drama major, and she... I think it was a retired English teacher in Defuniac, and she was the doyen of theater in Defuniac Springs. Mm -hmm. And just a hair younger than her was Adair Weiss, who you might have known as well. Okay. Also an English teacher with a theater background. Um, the two of them were uh, leading lights in the small, uh, I guess the beginnings of the theater company, Chautauqua Theater Company. Uh, I encountered them when we started work on a production of Our Town, which performed at the Lawson Cinema, now restored as the Ritz Cinema on, uh, what is that, Baldwin downtown? Yes. Yeah. Um, and back then it was, um, just a, it was just a cinema. There was, no, there was a stage there, but it was never really built for live performance. Mm -hmm. And there were these huge AC ducts that, because there was a screen in front of the stage, you know, between separating the audience from the stage, the very shallow stage, there were these big AC ducts that swooped in and just crisscrossed the stage at face level. Well, we didn't care. Uh, Lawson, who was an ex-mayor in Defuniac Springs, uh, was happy to let us in there and put on a show. So in front of the AC ducks, we put on Our Town. And that was my first theater. And we rehearsed at the Chautauqua building there on the lake. Right. Uh, and we went over to the, the Lawson. We did Our Town. And the next year, we did uh, a, 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 the play version of State Fair, which most people uh, will recognize as a Rodgers and Hammerstein movie. Mm -hmm. There were two movie versions of it. Uh, but before that, it was a play. And um, I got really adventurous. When they announced they were going to do the play, I said, hey, guys, I have a great idea. What if we grabbed the songs from the movie and stuck it in? This mm -hmm. was prior to the currently licensable version of State Fair, which anybody could now produce uh, and license from Rogers and Hammerstein organization. Back then, that wasn't a stage property. So if you wanted to do any kind of stage version of State Fair, you had to do what we did. Uh, I literally transcribed... First transcription I ever did in my life, I transcribed the soundtrack mm -hmm. to both versions of the movie because there were different songs in each. And we stuck all those songs into this play version of State Fair and we performed it at the, the Chautauqua Theater uh, a year later. And I think that was my junior year. And then my senior year, we kept getting more and more ambitious. By this time, they'd ripped out the AC ducts. Mm -hmm. We had more of a whole stage. It was all of 10 feet deep. Um, uh, we did Oklahoma and I was curly. And um, I also did the um, bandstration. We were, back then they didn't offer a bandstration for rental. They just sent you the regular orchestrations and you had to do what we did, which was, well, we don't have any strings in the Funiac Springs because there was no string program whatsoever. So right. we put the violin parts on clarinets and I wrote those out and had to, got an education in transcribing instruments. It's funny, yeah. you, you learn what you need to learn when you need to learn it, don't you? Right. <laughs> Um, and, um, and and then we we, we did Oklahoma uh, at the, and those are the three shows I did at the Chautauqua Little Theater and after that point it had developed such a head of steam that somebody in town maybe it was Lawson who owned the cinema when it bore his name said hey let's pursue a grant and then there was a, a a committee that was pulled together that got a state grant which restored the theater to its pre cinema look which is what it now looks like today on downtown Defuniac's uh, Baldwin Avenue so it was a sort of a cool 
moment to be a part of the theater scene, but that's how I got into theater alongside playing in the band. Wow. Alongside teaching myself piano. So it was all kind of rolled in there at one, at one time. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, the state fair, Oklahoma, those are pretty ambitious first transcriptions. Those are quite, that's quite amazing. Actually. Um, I got something like Jason Robert Brown though. I mean, I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's tonal and typically three to four chords a song. I mean, it wasn't too hard to hear what was going on. Right. But then you go to, you know, you go to Florida State and uh, you you probably have some people just like you, but that came from small towns. But you got a lot of people that come from big cities and have come from uh, maybe not even big cities, just big city programs. But, you know, maybe they've had some private lessons in there, too, for a long time. And yep. that changes some things. Now, I, I didn't quite do that. I went to the big city of Jacksonville, but I went to uh, a university, Jacksonville University, that basically is a, the population of Defuniac <laughs> in the whole university. They um, had really good teachers, but I didn't have a whole lot of competition, but it was high quality competition. And, you know, it was a, it was a nice way to ease into the next level, I thought, for, yeah. for me. So we go to, go to Florida State, you say, um, well, try you know, trumpet isn't going to be my future, um, but you obviously developed a knack of arranging. You obviously de- developed uh, a knack for theater. How did that continue through college? I got into the music theater program mm-hmm. at Florida State University, which is an audition program and quite selective. Like my my graduating class was a class of one. Wow. <laughs> started as a class of five mm-hmm. and uh, people fell out or people extended their time beyond four years. I was the only one who graduated when I graduated. Wow. It's a small program. So there's about 16 kids, mostly four per year uh, at Florida State at any time at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, it was an audition program and you had um, they auditioned at schools all over the state. Back then, Florida State was one of about five college music theater training programs in the country where you could get a BFA in musical theater. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not what I got. They had a really unique situation where the School of Theater collaborated with the School of Music to offer two music theater degrees. You could get one BFA through the School of Theater, or you can do what I did, which was get a BM through the School of Theater. About 75% of the coursework was identical, but the electives on the edges, um, if you're a BM, could be slanted more toward music. So I took a few more theory classes, music history classes, that sort of a thing, had a recital requirement, you know, the typical music major things. I got out of doing things like stage craft and crew and <laughs> play analysis and theater history and stuff like that. So I kind of, it, I, it suited me completely because I was also simultaneously, simultaneously taking piano lessons uh, as well as the required voice lessons. Mm-hmm. And by the, so I was, and I was doing a lot of singing in college, did a lot of um, uh, roles, which was kind of cool because I was tall and dark haired and skinny and I looked like a leading man, I guess. Although I never had the leading man voice I wanted to have. Right. David, I wanted to be Gordon McRae Mm -hmm. or Alfred Drake. I mean, that's the sound I wanted so badly. And I had this light Irish tenor sound that, was neither high enough as I wish a ten as you would wish a tenor would have, right? Um, nor was it low enough for where I felt like I was actually a baritoner. I was it was a very narrow range, and I don't know if that was just a reflection of where I was at that point because you know men's voices don't really come into their own until their late twenties, early thirties. It could have been that I I was a high tenor, I just didn't know it yet. Um, for any for whatever reason, I quickly was sort of like with trumpet. I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to be the world's greatest singer because I can't sing the repertoire that I really, really loved. Right. And I, I was surrounded by people who could in that program. Um, and so uh, by my senior year, I had decided already by that point to pursue professional music direction. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was well stacked for that because I had a band background, a wind background. I'd already been orchestrating things off and on and consistently since high school. Um, And I had a theater background. I was getting a theater, music theater degree. So lots of music, but also plenty of theater classes as well. So I thought, oh, I'm uniquely positioned to to know a whole lot about both music and theater. And so I pat myself on the back and said, I'm absolutely going to do this. So I I finished the degree, which is to say I have a BM in vocal performance music theater Mm-hmm. from Florida State University. But even by my senior year, I knew that I was going to be not singing professionally or acting or performing. And I, I approached um, a brilliant faculty uh, 
member at the School of Theater who was the School of Theater's music theater history and composer lyricist guy. And I did an independent study with him for my senior last uh, senior uh, semester. And as a result of that semester, I wrote my first show, which got produced. And because I was a class of one, I think it wasn't really a big senior project. For right. Me. My senior project was the production of my musical. And it was a, a three person musical. And I was one of the three. So I was in the cast and along with two other people who should have graduated when I did, but didn't. But so that was the culmination of my final semester was a senior project that wasn't aimed at me as a performer, although I was performing. It was really more about me as a as a show writer and a songwriter and lyricist. So that was pretty stinking cool, I have to say, in hindsight. Right. That's I kind of loved it. Right. I was just thinking that it, you, obviously there are certain shows you can't do if you have no more than 16, <laughs> especially a class <laughs> of one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, was, I tend to hate one man shows anyway for music, at least. Right. Music, like, it feels like a recital to me. And I was like, ah, what am I going to do? Write myself a hour long Aria? What the, I was just like, I have to have other people. I have to have other people. Yeah, I was just so digging I, through. I, I was digging through my experience to see I've done a I've done a two man show or, or a two person show. I do, I do. Uh, yeah. and I've done a a three person show, which is Tick Tick Boom. Yep. And um, I don't think I know any others that are quite that small. I know a few like have cast a four or more, you know, something yeah. like that. But John and Jen. Oh yeah, that's another two person. Yeah. Yeah, that's a two for a couple more out there, but um, they're hard to sustain, and boy, they're a lot of work. Uh, so, I guess you 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 instantly decided upon graduation that New York was in your future, right? Did you go straight there? Not exactly. No, I was um, music directing uh, at a theater in Tennessee, um, oh. uh, Cumberland County Playhouse. Okay, and I wasn't. I was the AMD uh, on keyboards. We did a couple of productions in the spring of 94. I graduated spring of 93, did summer stock, did a national tour where I was in the key in the band. Uh, it was My Fair Lady. It was a bus and truck national tour fall of 93. And then the conductor left after injuring himself on a low hanging pipe in an orchestra pit. Oh, no. <laughs> it sounds exactly like what you would expect to happen. Right. He was walking through one of these low tunnels that you have to often go through when you're heading to the pit underneath a, a stage and bonked himself, just clocked himself and knocked himself out. He left the tour and I took over conducting the show. So I conducted the final month and a half, I think, of, of My Fair Lady on the Road, fresh out of college, which was really cool. And when the... Um, tour ended in new york city which is the termination point of the tour is a bus and truck they you know drove everybody back to new york and said okay get off i was like well i guess i live here now mm. so that's how i moved to new york right. it wasn't by my saying i'm doing this it was just oh I, that was a gig and that's where it took me right which I, I suppose i always was headed here but i didn't have that plan until i was suddenly on that track you know right well, you know, I'm I'm sure there's going to be people who listen to this podcast. I'm I'm you know I have no way of knowing the exact demographic, but I'm I'm sure I I know for a fact that I've got some high school listeners, you know, that are musicians and they're thinking, uh, I'd like to do this professionally. I'd like to move to New York. Um, to me, having never done that myself, you know, I've 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 been to New York. I've I've had you know a little bit of work there, but I've never moved there and tried to make it. And I bet that's that sounds daunting. And and so, so where do you go from there? How do you how do you start getting work in New York? You do a lot of things for free for the opportunity of meeting people. <clears throat> and if you're um, fortunate enough to be able to afford to do things for free, which not many people are, and that's a whole completely another hot button topic right now, mm -hmm. uh, because it privileges those who have those financial means to work for free to get their start in an industry. Um, uh, that's how a lot of folks did it. Um, and so I, like everybody else, I was um, doing um, a lot of concerts that paid like, you know, a pat on the back and a beer kind of a thing. Right. Uh, and meeting people and just getting to know people and just kind of figuring out what I thought was my path in this industry. And I got very lucky because I, um, I have always had a very strong interest in music theater history, particularly the musicals of the 1920s and 30s. Mm -hmm. And I uh, was fortunate enough to be invited to a recording session in 1994 of um, a Gershwin show called OK, which was being funded at that point by Ira Gershwin's widow, Lenore Gershwin, 
and produced by Nonesuch Records. And so there was a very splashy cast album. It was a series of recordings. I got to be a part of a couple of them. Uh, this one, uh, I was a fly on the wall, uh, and uh, it was starring Don Upshaw as the lead uh, in OK, and that recording still out there on Nonesuch. Um, very cool project. And that opened my eyes and opened a lot of doors for me too, because I I met a lot of people in that uh, experience, which I was able to then stay close to because of shared interest. And then one project led to another, led to another, led to another kind of a thing. And um, it was it was a remarkable moment in time for, for me to be a part of all that and to meet all the people that I got to meet, which was thrilling. It was super fun. But yeah, the the the, the thing that they say about New York is true. It is the talent pool here is so incredibly deep, mm -hmm. so incredibly deep. I'm talking guys with doctorates in jazz piano from Berkeley come here mm -hmm. and want to music direct. Aside a guy like me who doesn't have a jazz background, who doesn't have a piano background, right? <laughs> not a formal one. You right. know what I mean? And right. so there are there are eye-opening moments left and right when you realize, okay. I'm probably not going to get the call for that gig because I wouldn't call me. I'd call that person. Do you know what I mean? So right. uh, hiring the right person for the job is something that I've learned is a, a rule that I try to follow and really, uh, and, and have been on the receiving end of that too. I've been lucky enough to be hired for a number of things, uh, but also have been passed by as all of us have over the course of a long career. And you think, gosh, I really wish I could have done that. Um, sometimes you don't know why you don't get the phone call. But, uh, you know, that opens up a, an avenue for something else to happen. Maybe you didn't expect. So um, it's a it's a huge industry and it's a very deep talent pool. So it's it's um, it can be quite intimidating. Right. I, I know guys who have um, conducted eight and ten Broadway shows. I've conducted one mm -hmm. um, that are just as desperate for work as I am sitting right here. Right. Right now. I mean, I'm separate from the particular situation of the pandemic right now, but just just in terms of just the sheer numbers of people and and the mere the, num the numbers of avenues in and out of the industry, mm -hmm. you can develop a very sexy resume and still wish your phone rang. Right. It's, it's weird, and yet there are situations where there's people who <laughs> keep getting the same phone calls over and over again. Right. <laughs> that happens. Right. People hire their friends. They absolutely hire their friends in a way that is frustrating and also gratifying because you think, oh, good, I have friends. Right. And they, and they hire me. And so it's it's a very strange thing. And the, the, the biggest splash in the face that I had to come gr to grips with was it's not merit-based. Right. It doesn't matter how much you think you might deserve it or how much time you've put in. You don't deserve anything and nothing is going to come to you because you've put that time in. Nothing's owed anybody. Right. Um, but once you sort of get over that disappointment, then you go, okay, well, if I didn't get the call for this gig or that gig, who knows the reason? I may never know the reason, but moving on, you know what I mean? You right. develop a bit of a thick skin and just sort of keep pressing forward. Right. With the I things think, that you, matter to you know, me, you know? Um, I'm not sure if this is the case with theater. I know this is the case with film because my, my study post, post undergraduate was film scoring. And, you know, one of the things they told us there um, said, I don't know how, I don't know if any of you guys are thinking about getting a doctorate goes, but if, if you go to Hollywood, no one will ever ask to see your degree. <laughs> and I'm sure to some extent that's the case. I've, I've met some people who are really proud of their master's degree in theater. And I'm thinking, uh, as far as I know, no one in New York's going to care. Uh, it's like, it's very true. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a lot who, you know, um, I just wanted to ask, um, Along the way, have you gotten to play in the pit for other shows or has it been kind of entirely of your own making as a music director? Sure. Uh, I'm a big, yes. I was. I spent nine years down at the Lion King on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was a sensational experience. I covered two different chairs, taught vocals, helped audition. I did so many things um, down there. Um, and I was trained to be uh, one of the conductors on the conductor staff, which was a big, long list. And I think I was probably number seven. Okay. <laughs> and I never did it. Oh, wow. I never did it. There were there were so many people on the list above me already. And this was 1999 when I first got there. Um, <clears throat> I never conducted the show, but I was trained for it. Right. And I sat through every training session and could have. And I, I still have the notes. I found them in my basement storage right. last month. 
my cue card notes, handwritten, scribbled uh, for every cue in the Lion King. I, it would, I could probably do it tonight if they called me, uh, right. but because <laughs> I, I really prepared and worked for quite a while. But that's just an example. I mean, I was there nine years. Mm-hmm. I never got to conduct it once. Right, but but you said you coupled, uh, covered some other things. What like like as keyboard? Is that what you're saying? Or? I played keys two and three. Yeah, the, uh, the Broadway production has three keys. I covered two and three. Okay. And um and if I wasn't doing that, I was. Uh, teaching vocals because the cast turnover was outrageous mm-hmm. because of the injury rate. Wow! In New York City, the New York City company, the choreography is so taxing because it was um, choreographed by a modern. Well, this wasn't the only reason, but we always talk to the building that you know this choreography is so darn hard because it was choreographed by a modern dancer mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody who thought, oh, modern dance doesn't have to happen eight times a week. Right. <laughs> you might have two performances over the course of a week, and then you let your body heal. The dancers that the Lion King get chewed up hmm. because the, 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 the choreography is so physically taxing, and they have to do it eight times a week. And so injury rate, sky high. People falling out, sky high. Illness, sky high, just because of fatigue and exhaustion and everything. So, uh, so there, was a, there was always somebody who needed putting into the show, rehearsing for a cover, understudy rehearsal etc um and so if i wasn't doing that i was watching it i was at the soundboard with a set of cans on listening to and this is kind of brutal but this is what they did they'd put a new person into the show and then one of my jobs was to sit at the sound booth press a particular button and i would hear just that person's vocal mm-hmm. 37 people on stage all singing and i was listening to jimmy b whatever his name was mm-hmm. mike was labeled jimmy b um, and to find out if he was actually singing what he was taught. Oh, wow. <laughs> if he wasn't, I was charged with basically writing him a couple of warnings and calling him into more rehearsal. Wow. That's... Hey, I heard you drifted over to the second baritone track in that passage instead of sticking to the regular baritone track. I need to see you on Tuesday. It's that kind of a thing. Wow. That's... Meanwhile, they're <laughs> dancing their butts off at the same time. It was the most amazing feat to watch these uh, insanely gifted performers do all that they did. And it felt so cruel to mm-hmm. come down on them so hard because they were sounding so great. But yeah, you drifted from Barry one to Barry two on those that four bar passage. So I'm supposed to write it down in this book. Wow. <laughs> That's quite <laughs> high standards. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm yeah. telling you. Um, so when did you start writing shows that people started performing like in New York? Well, after um, I did what a lot of people think I did. I, I was so enamored with Stephen Sondheim. Mm-hmm that I thought I'm never going to be one eighth of as good as a person of a writer as he is. So (laughs) I kind of let that get me down and I stopped writing for a while after writing that college show. I didn't write for a few years. Then I picked up a couple of projects here and there started writing again and deliberately tried to avoid the Sondheim ethos. Right. And that, took some maturing in my own brain for understanding, first of all, exactly what I thought Stephen Sondheim's voice was. Mm-hmm. What are the kinds of things he gives voice to in song? And what are the kinds of properties he chooses to musicalize? And, and felt I was in a bit safer territory if I was choosing things that wouldn't have been seen as even quasi Sondheim in any way, stretch or, stretch or form. So I was definitely trying to not put myself up against that, what I knew would to be a completely unflattering characterization. Um, and that was all just mind games in my head because I thought, how, how am I going to justify, how do I approach any singer and say, hey, I've got this great new song. It's mm-hmm. not as good as Sondheim, but do you want to give it a shot? Like I had that demon sitting on my shoulder for so long. Right. Um, happily, that has fallen away. And um, I'd say in the past 10 years, I particularly feel completely free of that because I just, first of all, the industry has made it very clear that as brilliant as Sondheim is, no one's sitting around wishing for the next Sondheim. Right. Those people are out there, but their work does not get produced. Right. No one's producing the next brain crunchy, insanely complicated, highly intellectual right brain piece, which is what all of his acolytes are trying to write. Right. Um, the closest is Adam Gettle, hmm. I would say. Uh, Ricky Ian Gordon, uh, Michael John Lacusa are also in that category. They've been fortunate enough to get quite a lot of things produced. But um, but I don't feel the industry 
and more to the point, audiences are clamoring for more Sondheim stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so that gave me a lot of encouragement to say, well, I see what is getting produced, fun things with a beat. Yep. Um, and so I took a, a, a hard left into pop music and have been writing a lot more of a pop vein uh, in a pop vein than I ever had. And I don't have a pop background, not unless, it, well, as my, I was an admirer of pop music. Right. But I was never the guy who utterly geeked out on it. I mm -hmm. had my head too deep in trumpet and piano and singing. Um, and I didn't have a band background. I wasn't fortunate enough to have a dad who was in a bluegrass band, which sounds so awesome. Right. <laughs> I wish that was true of me. <laughs> but um, but I so I kind of came to pop music as a late appreciator of it after I already had the means by which to sort of dissect it in my brain and understand what they were doing. Right. So at that and I was like, oh, heck, I can write that. Plus, I'm seeing things like um, Frank Wildhorn and any number of catalog shows and all kinds of pop things El like Elton John. Uh, so much of that genre is getting produced these days and has a, is, is welcomed. Mm -hmm. So that has made me a lot more uh, excited about what I can contribute to the world than I, than I thought in the 1990s. Right. So, um, so what's, what was the first show in this era? One that I wrote? Yeah. Oh, I wrote a show called Whirly Gig with Maya Reamer, who okay. you know well. Oh, yeah. It never got produced, I'm sorry to say. Oh, okay. But it's probably the thing that I would say I'm most proud of because it was the piece that reminded me, oh, I can do this. And I, I have something to say. I think I'm pretty good at it. And people are responding to it like crazy. Right. And gave us a lot of positive feedback. We... Uh, found ourselves really excited about what it could be, uh, we ultimately hit a rights problem hmm. um, and couldn't license the property that it was based on. So um, it, I can't say we finished it. Maya wouldn't say we finished it either because we never actually got all the way to production. And if you know anything about new musicals, that sucker ain't even halfway done until it's on its feet. Right. Oh, I know that. Um, um, yeah, Collins Boy is um, coming up on it. Well, I guess it's in its... I guess you can't count this year. There's nothing you could do this year, but so it, it would be in yeah. his fifth year. It's really four years. And, uh, you know, the writers said, uh, they found out for shows that make it to Broadway takes an average of eight years. So, <laughs> you know, we've been in the Atlanta music theater festival. We've had a couple of equity readings in New York, but you know, that's yeah. as far as it's gone. Uh, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough haul. Uh, or it's I gotta ask dope. you, I gotta ask you about a few shows. So one, one show that, that really caught my attention soon after we connected on Facebook. Um, so back in 2004, I started getting into audiobooks, and and my introduction was the Harry Potter series read by Jim Dale. And I would just I I started like finding everything that this guy did. He did a version of a Christmas Carol and Around the World in 80 Days and. Uh, I just I was impressed with his vocal talent. When I saw that you wrote a show for him, I guess it was a one man show. I've never gotten <laughs> to see it or or really hear it, but that just is amazing. So tell me how you met Jim Dale and how that came to be. I was uh, I got a phone call from Tony Walton, the legendary uh, set and costume designer who did everything from designing the original movie of Mary Poppins to the original productions of Chicago and Pippin. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's look him up. He's insanely awesome. Tony wow. Walton. His first wife was Julie Andrews. Mm. Uh, and uh, he's had a storied career. It's just legendary. Tony called me because someone had given him my name. He was doing a concert version of a show called Busker Alley. Mm-hmm which might ring some bells for some folks. It was written by the Sherman brothers who were longtime Disney stable uh, songwriters who wrote the score for Mary Poppins and so many other things like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and uh, Winnie the Pooh and all, so many things. They had tried to take a show to Broadway called Busker Alley. It was to star Tommy Toon. It's a famous debacle, mid to late 90s. Tommy injured himself shortly before the show was to come into town and the whole thing collapsed. Mm -hmm. Tommy was, I believe he was the star of it and the director of it. And this was after he'd won a boatload of Tony Awards for directing things like Nine and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and Seesaw and so many other things he'd done in the 70s and the 80s. Anyway, so that show tanked. In 2007, there was an urge to revisit that score. This is 10 years or so after it had died. Uh, and they wanted to put up a concert version of it. It was to star Jim Dale. And they needed a music director. Would I be interested? Heck yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, uh, <laughs> heck yeah. Uh, flash forward four months later, we did a concert uh, and it was Jim Dale and uh, Glenn Close of all people. Wow. Uh, Glenn Close was Jim's uh, co-star in Barnum, the show that won him a Tony Award in 1980. Right. And of course, they're still chums. So when we needed a grand dame for Busker Alley, he <laughs> called his friend Glenn. So met both of them. Jim and I hit it off. And um, uh, another musician in the picture named Mark York. Uh, we were uh, just a tight trio of, of good friends. We started batting around ideas. And I initially pitched an idea for... A, an Actors Fund concert. At that time, the Actors Fund in New York City was putting on big gala concerts with stars. I said, Jim, you want to do one? He said, yeah, but I want to do one that's more theater and less singing because I consider myself more of an actor than a singer. And the format for those Actors Fund concerts was primarily stand and sing kind of a thing in front of a huge orchestra on the stage at Carnegie Hall. Jim said, I don't want to do that. I want to do... Uh, something has a lot more theater in it and then songs. And so the idea morphed eventually into a one-man show uh, that I was the music director for. Uh, Mark York, uh, an insanely gifted pianist and a dear friend of mine, uh, was uh, the pianist. He was the onstage pianist for it. And together, Mark and I collaborated on the arrangements. Uh, and uh, we got produced at Roundabout in 2014. And then the show got taken to London in summer of 2015 for a limited run. Uh, at the vaudeville theater in london which was uh, an experience of a lifetime right. so much fun um we recorded the show in london and i have breaking news yep. for your podcast david okay <laughs> um audible books yep is about to release an audible book version of jim's one-man show called just jim dale awesome yeah <laughs> so it will soon be available uh now five years after the fact right took a get the rights cleaned out and a lot has changed in five years in terms of the landscape of digital media as you might imagine um and it, surprisingly audible has now become this uh, a force in theatrical production in new york city or they had before the pandemic shut down right. um you were starting to see they have a division of live theater and mm. i forget who's running it but um they are they were about to or had just opened their first off-broadway production backed by audible books hmm. so that's an interesting branch out diversification wow. from their stated model of audiobooks and you know uh recordings um so uh i'm very happy to say that you'll get a chance very soon to hear just jim dale okay as li taped live um on the stages uh in london which oh. was fantastic yeah and of course i mean audible would jump o over that for the reasons that i mentioned it's like i mean uh, yeah you know i mean harry potter for for what it probably did for I don't know, just increasing widespread interest in reading, <laughs> you know, the, Jim Dale did that for the audiobooks. Now, um, you know, if I got anybody listening in England, Stephen Fry did those and Stephen Fry is amazing. I've, I've actually heard both versions and I think they're very good, but nostalgically, you know, Jim Dale is just, that just resonated when I saw that you'd done a show for him. So congratulations on that. Um, Thank so you. the next thing that really crossed my mind, uh, that crossed my path was, um, was when you were in where I live in Winston-Salem at North Carolina School of the Arts, <laughs> you were the guest conductor for Mysterio, uh, the mystery of Edwin Drood, I believe. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and this was like, uh, yeah, the, the status was like, uh, uh, we had a, we had a great time and this was like two weeks after and I was like, oh man. Because people were talking about that show here. Were they? Yeah. I mean, the, the theater community around here, they love to go to the School of the Arts. They love to go to Elon, which is nearby. And they love to, you know, to, to watch these shows. And and wow. I kept seeing people talk about, go see that show. Go see that show. And um, I catch one of out, of out of every five or so. And it just, you, you know, yours was in the four that I didn't. And um, I, did, I didn't know who the music director was. I, I know that they get they do get music directors from New York, you know, for this area, because a lot of that is kind of the thought of, um, well, first of all, the theater students will have met somebody in New York and it's a networking thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, as soon as I heard that, I was kicking myself because it's like, hey, I know that guy. It's like I should have should have gone to have seen it. You know, I'm kicking myself too. I wish I'd known. I wish I'd known that you lived in Winston Salem. Oh yeah, <laughs> we hadn't been in touch at that point in years, and I had no idea you lived there. So right, I, yeah. 
Um, that I don't even remember the, when that was, like five years ago, maybe? It was winter of 2012. Oh, longer than that. So, yeah, eight years ago. <laughs> yes, before our daughter was born. And I remember it very clearly because we were pregnant by that point. Right. But uh, we uh, we hadn't had it. So that was a nail-biting moment. And so, yeah. Right. Um, they brought me down. We did Drood. It was super fun. And um, uh, I loved it. It was a wonderful experience. And I got down to Winston-Salem because of... Um, the director, John Langs. Okay. Do you know that name? I'm, I'm not sure that I do. John was a graduate of NC School of the Arts mm -hmm. uh, and had been brought back to direct a couple of things. And this was one of the things he was on deck to do. They needed a music director. And I had worked with John on an off-Broadway musical we did in New York City in 2011 mm. or 10. Or Actually, we started work on it back in 2005 didn't come to Off-Broadway until 2011. So yeah, it does take years. Called The Shags. Mm. And if you want an odd Off-Broadway experience, it's the coolest show and the weirdest show ever. It's called The Shags. It got a cast album. It's rarely produced, but um, it is so wonderfully weird. Wow. Uh, and anyway, John and I met on that and we hit it off with chums and he said, hey, I'm doing this thing in North Carolina. Would you like to come down? I said, sure. So... I went down and we did it. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I since I didn't see the show, I don't know who played in your pit, uh, but a good chance that they're the same people that I hire on a regular basis. Because when I go to the shows at School of the Arts, I'm seeing the same yeah. people. Uh, one that I would bet money on, is there a read book in um, sure. Edwin Drew? You might have met Ronald Ford. I think so. Yeah. He's he's actually, uh, he's uh, episode... Gosh, I'm I'm losing my memory here. It's like I, I have to go back and check early teens, you know. But he he's been on yeah. the podcast already, so um, we, yeah, we we had quite a great conversation. But yeah, I I because I remember talking to him off the record, and he said that he had done like every show that they've done where they've hired outside since probably the last ten yeah. years. So that that would be in that window. So <laughs> I'm sure you knew all the pros we brought in. I can't. I'd have to pull up the email to, to remind myself of everyone's names. Well, I'm foggy because it was a mix of students from the School of Music and pros that if we didn't have a, a if we couldn't fill a slot from the School of Music, we had to hire a pro. Yeah. So um, I think we probably had a pro guitarist. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, pretty much now it's mostly pros, uh, although sometimes it's pros within the school system and then other time they come from outside. Yeah. So what about other... Yeah, that just brings up the topic of music directing for regional theaters, which is something that I've given thought to. Um, I think what really holds me back is just, um, although I might be able to do it now because I'm getting online teaching experience, but, you know, it's the whole thought of I've, a good chunk of my income is teaching students in person, you know, so, and I also am part-time music director to church. So it's these things that I would have to give up and I don't know that they'd all, they all be willing to say, uh, we'll be here when you get back. So that's kind of been yeah. a thing. Um, but, you know, with online possibilities, who knows? But um, when did you start going to, like, other regions to be music director? I know you talked about, like, you've done things in Long Island as well, right? Yeah. Um, it's all who you know. It's a friend saying, hey, I'm doing a show. We need an MD. Are you available? Right. Um, I never – I know that there are – there are big, um, I'd say, communities across the country that are so rich that they rarely bring in musicians. Like, MDs don't go do shows in L.A. because L.A. is riddled with music directors. You know what I mean? So, right. Um, uh, uh, Seattle's got a wonderful uh, musical. I mean, any big city. Denver's got a big scene. Uh, that said, you might get brought in for a show or two, but um, my hunch is that the 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 pay for so many regional theaters is moderate to low and 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 probably commensurate with the living cost of living in those areas mm -hmm. um that for example if i were to go from here to st louis i might be able to afford to do it uh, like a three-week show but i probably couldn't afford a three-month show kind of a thing right it would mean I don't know that I would get paid what I would need to get paid in order to turn down work here to go there. So right. in some ways it's a financial scenario more than anything else. Right. And the guys who are already in St. Louis, just for that hypothetical, you know, they've already got a place to live there and I would need to be put up. 
Mm-hmm. They've already got a car there and they need to rent me a car. Like, you know, there are expenses that you have to have when you bring somebody in. So um, in some ways, it's just cheaper for them to use local than to bring in outside. Right. Um, that said, if a project is coming along and there's a director involved and he often always gets his choice of music director, if they want to bring in somebody and that and that person is central to the project in some important way, they figure out a way, you know. Right. They do. So uh, if I if I've been brought regionally, it's it's often under that kind of a scenario, not because I said, hey, I'm going to look into Salt Lake and find work in Salt Lake. I mean, right. I wouldn't go to Salt Lake unless somebody invited me. Right. That kind of a thing. Plus, I've got roots here and a mortgage to pay here in New York City. So right. uh, I tend to be looking for work in New York City because I've got kids here and it's that kind of a thing. Um, I, I find that people who might not be partnered up, might not have kids, have a far easier time continuing to work regionally than those of us who don't fall into that category. Right. Now, do you, do you actually live in New York city or do you live like in, in I live in New York city. Yeah. I live in the top uppermost corner of Manhattan. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You talked about long Island, but I think that was a work thing you were, you were mentioning. I work a lot on long Island, which is just, you know, 30, 30 minute drive. Was it Pippin? Was it Pippin? There was some show that I did that you said that you just finished uh, a a regional production of. Oh, I work a lot at at colleges on long Island. Uh, One that I work at all the time is Malloy college, uh, which is a small Catholic college uh, with a wonderful performing arts center called the Madison theater. And they produce a lot of college uh, productions for their college students. And so uh, I can frequently um, say yes to those kinds of things and keep, you know, teaching going on that I've also got going on, recording projects, everything else I've got going. It's easy to fit something like that that's local into the bigger picture right. than it would be for me to leave town to go do an equally paying job. Right. You know, so it's, it's often it's a mosaic of income streams and right. and schedules to make things like that work. Was that an ice cream truck going by you? <laughs> there was. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. Um, this has been such a great conversation and I, we could keep it going, but I want to close with some of my usual questions. So what's a horror story from a production? Two things. I'll tell you two of them because they're both funny and very different. Okay. Um, at the Lion King, you might most people know that uh, the, the the masks are very famous over there, and those headpieces that the actors have to wear are sometimes 15, 20, 25 pounds. Wow. <laughs> and they're dancing and slinging their bodies all across the stage. And in Act Two of Lion King, the adult Simba has to wear one of those heavy, heavy headpieces. Mm. And it's, it is like two and a half feet tall off the top of their head, and the face of the character is here and the actor's face is visible below so right. this is a carved mask and there's fur way up here it's almost as tall as you can reach high um one night at the end of he lives in you late act two after he's figured out he's going to go back and save the kingdom from scar he is choreographed to do some head swings like this and that mask went flying off of his head oh sailed into the wings blessedly but the main curtain got brought down and we stopped the show. Wow. <laughs> we were warned that this was possible, but the, when it finally happened, I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about. Cool. <laughs> Not cool. I don't think somebody got hit by the mask. They weren't badly injured, but wow. uh, it, was, it was definitely a timeout. And on, on Broadway, we took a 25-minute timeout. Wow. <laughs> while they made sure that person was okay and didn't have whiplash and uh, and the person who got hit by the mask was okay. I think it went slamming into a, a <laughs> set piece that was being flown. I mean, you can't imagine the chaos because it's such a tightly choreographed backstage scenario. So when something heavy goes flying, it's a timeout. That wasn't the only time there was a timeout on Broadway that I can remember, but that was the most dramatic one because everybody can remember those masks and imagine what it must be like to have one of those flinging past you. Right. The other horror story I have, (laughs) I was doing um, my Carnegie Hall debut. I was conducting um, an act called the New York Tenors, Mm. which was three tenors uh, that we toured the country um, uh, doing, uh, oh, each guy had a specialty. One guy did uh, Irish things. One guy did Italian opera. Uh, and one guy did sort of all-purpose things, but also some Latin things because he had a, 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 a Guatemalan background. So he could turn around mm. and do Ibonet and then 
turn around and kill you with a Frank Wildhorn. So it was like he wonderfully um, varied. Uh, the opening of our second act set, it, it, I was at the piano when there was a band. Uh, opening of the second act set, I, it was just piano and, and the Irish guy. And the Irish guy strolls out there. And I'm noodling underneath some banter. And we're supposed to go into Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And I, I hear the cue. I tee him up for the I'm just noodling. I'm playing something. I finally get to, oh, here's the cue line. I'm going to give a minor two, something here. And I'm going to end with a, a 513 chord. And do ba da 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 And instead of going, have yourself a merry little Christmas, he goes, I'll be home for Christmas. He goes into a different song entirely. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I didn't have music to that. That song wasn't in our set. Oh. And I was freaking winging it on the stage of Carnegie Hall. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I still have nightmares about that, David. Like, don't start singing a different song, because what could I do other than keep going? I couldn't be like, stop. You did something wrong. I had to keep going. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing I just keep going and hope like heck I remembered this different song, but I bit his head off when I came off that stage. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't like straying from the plan. Well, wow. Cause I like to rehearse and like to feel like I know what I'm doing out there. I can wing it, but. Uh, what's a fond memory from a show? Oh gosh. That same act. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm such a sentimentalist. Uh, that same act, New York tenors, we were playing a show in Pennsylvania and my daughter was, two weeks old, maybe one week old. It was really right after she was born. And um, they announced from the stage that I was a new dad. And uh, at intermission, some kind audience person ran to a store somewhere and came back with a most wonderful gift for my daughter. It was this um, uh, toy and a big bouquet of flowers. And I was so touched by that more than anything else. And it was a, no one I knew. No one the singers knew. It was just a random audience member. And it was such a, a random gesture of kindness and a, a thanks and a congratulations that that has always stuck with me as maybe the one of the most marvelous moments. Wow. I mean, I'm, not, I'm talking separate from, you know, our separate category than artistic achievements and the things that you are most proud of musically that you're like, yes, we got that choral arrangement. Oh, that int intonation was wonderful. All those things. Yes. That's in one category, but the sentimental answer had to do with my daughter. Right. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I was just thinking, what, what are some special projects you have going on? I know you told me about uh, Romeo and Bernadette. Romeo and Bernadette, an off-Broadway show that uh, we hope can come back at some point. Uh, we were about to begin our tech rehearsals when the Broadway theater here in New York City got shut down. Boom. It was a Thursday afternoon in March, March 13th or 12th or something around that time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, wonderful, hilarious riff on Romeo and Bernadette. Mm -hmm, right. And um, uh, uh, I'm the music director, small band, but orchestrations by my buddy, Steve Orich, who is the orchestrator of Jersey Boys. Hmm. Just sensational good music to play. And there's a real swing and rat pack quality to this show. And it's just so much fun. The band is full of guys I've gigged with forever and adore them all. And uh, with luck, we'll be able to bring that show back. I think in the meantime, we're going to make a cast album, uh, which we've, we still can't do live performances in New York City yet because it's still pandemic time, but taking small groups of people into a recording studio is, is now possible. And I'm seeing other projects getting studio recordings. I hope we're able to do the same soon. And, uh, and if so, that would be something to celebrate. I'm really excited about that. Great. Well, I hope that works out. Um, I almost forgot taking it back last year. I got to work with Taylor Bice and you were, you know, Taylor. You? Yeah. Yes. We, we talked about this, of course, in Atlanta. Yeah. When, when did you work with Taylor? Taylor was a part of a Four Seasons tribute act I had music directed and put together. Oh, nice! <laughs> about ten years ago, yeah. and um, boy, he was a beautiful singer. He is a beautiful singer, um, and I know that he uh, uh, moved back down to Atlanta and is now doing wonderful things in the Atlanta theater community. Oh, he's got his own theater company, the Taylor, like yeah. the Bice Wallace Theater Company, or named after his grandfather. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, wonderful. Um, do you have a place people can follow you if they want to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, mostly Facebook. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I have a website, but like everybody, I haven't updated that thing in a couple of years now, and I'm hoping I keep paying the hosting, yeah. the hosting, but I I don't know where it is. Well, besides this podcast, updating my website something I did do in the pandemic. So. Oh, good job. <laughs> yeah. So make a little bit more use use of it. 
Uh, awesome. Well, it's been great connecting. I uh, sincerely hope it will not be another 31 years <laughs> or even close to that. Oh, please. Uh, yeah, hopefully I'll get to New York again and, you know, we'll, we'll catch up. I would like that. And if anything takes me to North Carolina, we're not going to not see each other this time. Right. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. If you've listened to this point of the episode, thank you for sticking with it. This was a long episode. I know the last couple of episodes have also been long. And it's also uh, three keyboardists I've talked to in a row. Uh, next week, I'm going to be returning to the world of the bass. I'm going to be talking to Virginia Massius about playing the bass for a variety of ensembles. And, of course, including the playing for the pit. That's going to be episode 25. I can hardly believe that we're at 25 episodes. Um Thank you for sticking with this for so long. Please let me remind you, please offer five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please share this episode and this podcast with those who'd be interested. And if you want to follow what's coming up next, you can do so on Instagram or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. And you can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. I want to always give a special thank you to Mark Perillo for his cover art and to Bill Sisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is by David Lane, and you can reach me or find out more about the podcast at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening.